From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watts-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, our guests are Lara Putnam, who is a professor in the Department of History at the University of Pittsburgh, and Miha Sifri, who is the founder of Civic Hall and writes a newsletter on Substack called The Connector. And Lara and Miha worked together on an op-ed that was published in the New York Times at the end of the summer, and some subsequent posts on The Connector newsletter. Uh, and if, if you if Lara Putnam's name sounds familiar to you, uh, we had her on the show back in 2018. One of our first episodes uh, was before the 2018 midterms, and we talked with her about the kind of grassroots organizing that had happened uh, after Donald Trump was elected, sort of between 2016 and 2018. And this is, I think, a fitting time to have her back to kind of see where we are now as we head into the 2022 midterms. One thing that I always uh, really appreciate about about Lara, both in terms of listening to her and then following her on Twitter, is that she really has a very nuanced and uh, close look. She does a really nuanced and close look at what's going on in terms of organizing within the state of Pennsylvania. And not only before the 2018 election, I remember around the times of the Black Lives Matters protests, too, that uh, Lara was in all kinds of uh, communities, small and large, throughout Pennsylvania, talking about what she was uh, seeing in terms of uh, protest activity. Uh, Candace, I thought maybe it'd be a good place to start by uh, talking about why every time we approach a midterm election, we don't expect very many people to vote. Well, because people don't turn out to vote. <laughs> <laughs> Why not, Candace? <laughs> I mean, I you know, so you know, presidential elections are easy, they're flashy, there's a lot going on, and you know, Americans generally speaking don't um, you know, politics I think has not been at the you know kind of center of their world that we think about. Um, usually there's like someone in your community, there's that like one guy or one lady who's like totally into it. And then the rest of us are like, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, just the trends show typically that there is a significant drop off between presidential elections and midterm elections. And um, though in 2018, there were just way higher than normal folks uh, that turned out, I think maybe like almost over a little bit over 50% of, I think, eligible voters. Yeah, it looked like, um, a, regular, it looked like a presidential election. What, I, I guess one thing that, 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 you, that you said that made me think of something else, and it's mm -hmm. that we kind of tend to think about voter turnout in terms of your kind of individual orientation toward politics and the resources that you might have. So education, income, gender, age, all of these things, we kind of tend to think about it on the individual level about people kind of making choices and that their choices to turn out might be higher depending on these groups that they belong to. But one thing that I appreciated about Lara and, and Mika's kind of insights are the role of kind of larger organizations, institutions, and then the parties as playing a role in bringing people into into the fold and keeping them in the fold in between elections. So this kind of 
you know, the issues around midterms, we tend to just, you know, look at Americans and think like, oh, you guys aren't doing your civic responsibility without also thinking about the kind of larger structures, laws, organizations, institutions that would facilitate people participating in politics both at the ballot box, but then outside the ballot box. Uh, yeah. And and what I think is uh, pretty interesting about the kind of work that Lara and Mika are doing and that you know, we'll hear in the interview coming up is that they appreciate that the way in which people have are mobilized has changed over time. Yeah. And, you know, so we go back, I mean, actually, you go back to pre-progressive era <laughs> and voting turnout was in the 80, 90 percent, sometimes even over 100 percent. It was remarkable how mm-hmm. many people mm-hmm. turn out to vote in the times of uh, machine politics. But yeah. I mean, what that really points to is just that parties really played a major role you know, going back in American history and turning voters out and, yeah. and and parties are less effective at that than than they than they used to be. And of course, a lot of the progressive reforms were intended to to weaken parties and weaken right. their ability to do that. But also, I think it's important and they, they speak to this a bit that especially on the Democratic side, that unions played a very important role yeah. in turning people out to vote. And while, you know, teachers unions, for example, are still very important in helping to mobilize voters for Democrats. Unions don't play quite the role that they that they used to play. So that that leaves that leaves a vacuum that I think they're they're trying they're going to try to speak to. Yeah, and uh, yeah, really, how best to fill that vacuum? What role should the parties play? Those are all questions that our that are central to Lara and Mika's work and some of their recent writing. So let's go now to the interview and hear more about it. Mika Sifri and Lara Putnam, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you both for joining us today. Delighted to be here. Yeah, pleasure. So I was just telling you before we started recording that uh, it's always a delight to see two people uh, who I've been following separately for for a while come together to write something as the, the two of you did recently in the, the New York Times and some follow-up pieces, uh, Mika, in your, your newsletter. Um, so can you just maybe start with with a bit of an origin story? How did you come to, to know each other? And, and what were some of the common threads that you saw between your work? I think the answer is Twitter. <laughs> Inevitably, uh, I think Lara and I zero in on many of the same Uh, little nuggets and oddities that you can find in the the great wasteland known as Twitter. And then we discover, of course, we have, you know, mutual friends. And, you know, I think I've uh, certainly came across some of Lara's earlier work going back to like 2017, when she was writing about the rise of the anti-Trump, quote, resistance in places like Pennsylvania. So we we absolutely resonated on a, a bunch of levels right from the start. Yeah, there's, I think, I, I had been following Mika from afar as someone who was really interested in both the big picture of how national shifts in funding and the understandings of national level organizers or sort of progressive voices how that impacted what was happening on the ground and individual people's forms of engaging with the political process. And, you know, there aren't that many 
there are lots of people who are interested in one slice or one layer of that sort of stack of, of the healthy functioning of democratic systems. But Mika really is interested in how the different layers interact. And that's always what I'm eager to be learning about. And so that's that, that's sort of what drew, drew me into his range of writings. And then it was great to find that we you know resonated and could build off each other's observations. Yeah. And so this this piece in the, the Times, on one level, it's about about emails, uh, maybe too much about emails. We could talk about that, but at the at the the heart is this kind of churn and burn strategy, uh, as I I believe you you describe it. Uh, I'm sure many of us are familiar with this on a, on an individual level from receiving emails and and text messages that seem very urgent in their their appeals for money. Uh, but can you uh, you know, walk us through the higher level strategy? Where does it come from and how long has it been around those kinds of things i think you have to go back to the decline of the the sort of old party structures that mobilized people in politics which you know really start to die out late 50s early 60s as the country suburbanizes as television takes over as the main medium for reaching people. And so TV advertising and and the money required to buy those ads comes to dominate both parties and how they engage at the highest level, but also the hollowing out at at the local level, which I think has been worse on the Democratic side than on the Republican side. Fast forward to the last 25 years, the rise of the internet as a ubiquitous connection and communications technology, which first is discovered by politicos as this amazing fundraising spigot, and they start investing more money in digital forms of campaigning and engaging uh, with voters, number one, because it's profitable. They get more money out than they have to put in. But it also is through a period on the Democratic side, period where grassroots activists also start forming their own networks and in many cases get vacuumed up into verticals called email lists, uh, move on being, uh, you know, sort of the mother of them all. And, and then the Obama campaign, which seemed to combine a revival of the grassroots distributed decentralized empowerment of local precinct volunteers and and super volunteers who were given some some autonomy to run the get out the vote effort in their particular neighborhood or or precinct combined with unbelievably sophisticated use of uh, analytics to do everything from analyze how to target which voters with what messages to how to most efficiently spend money on everything from paid media to, uh, you know, where you locate, you know, a local get out the vote operation. And the Obama uh, cycle, which was from 2008 to 2016, is what still powers, I, we would argue, the Beltway brain, the, the approach that so many Democrats, as well as Republicans, take towards voters, which is these are, you know, people to be, you know, money and data to be harvested from them 
in the case of volunteers, just in time activities like sign up for this phone bank or sign up for this canvas. And that when, that is where we get what we have now, um, despite the anti-Trump uh, years where millions of, of grassroots activists, Democrats decided to get involved on their own. And that's for me and Lara, I think the silver lining of the story is that there have been a lot of, of interesting and, and, and important local political formations that we think offer a different a different way of doing things. But it's a it's a big hole that Democrats in particular have dug themselves into. You don't dig out of in you know one cycle. Yeah, and uh, Lara, let's let's pick up with uh, sort of where where we left off. The last time you were on the show was 2018. You were in the midst of this work with grassroots organizers in in Western Pennsylvania. Um, I think feeling. I'm fairly optimistic, at least as optimistic as any academic ever feels, maybe about where things were going. Uh, and so, where where are those groups now? Is is there a sense that uh, some of that momentum has been overshadowed by these seemingly dire emails and text messages about democracy dying and needing to to support it financially, as opposed to building grassroots coalitions? Sure. You know, I think the big picture story is that that surge of new uh, grassroots organizing that you're talking about and that we were talking about in 2018 has, in fact, managed to build in many places significant local structures that are remaking politics and remaking the practice of politics on the center to the left. But they've done so by really all the things that they were doing that were ignoring the directions that they got from above, that were ignoring the emails or ignoring the advice of national leaders who were re- and, and campaign staff, who all, all of whom understandably were really focused, focused on short-term channeling of countable actions, you know, join this text bank, knock this number of doors, send this many, you know, postcards to voters. So it totally makes sense that from national level leaders and political professionals tend to have, you know, short, short-term interests and be, be focused on what they can either show to their candidate or show to their funders as, as sort of visible, countable uh, evidence of quote-unquote grass, grassroots involvement. But the, all the actually important stuff that comes out of grassroots involvement is the stuff that you can't count so easily because it doesn't come in neat little identical boxes. It is, it is important because it is locally specific. It is important because it is adapting to and shifting form depending on who it's connecting to. It's important because who the partner, the relevant local partners are going to be aren't the same in rural Pennsylvania, in the exurbs, in the city. So we see this. And so, so grassroots involvement has remade politics in lots of places, but not in immediately sort of predictable or entirely uniform ways. And so we see this, for instance, in, you know, in the city of Pittsburgh and in Allegheny County, the old uh, cohorts of old uh, old school democratic politicians whose core allies within the city had been developers on the one hand and the trade unions on the other hand have really found themselves sort of 
sidelined or not, if not sidelined, at least pushed out of the driving chair in terms of local democratic politics and new alliances with and new coalitions that involve service workers, that involve people trying to organize hospital workers uh, and home health care workers. So it's labor involved, but it's a different sector of the labor, different realm of the labor union movement and folks who were energized over uh, Black Lives Matter protests and issues of the uh, incarceration and of racial justice, those folks have come together and elected a whole new round of judges to uh, county-wide offices within Allegheny County, unseated an incumbent mayor, elected a new mayor, and uh, have essentially um, made possible a, an opening for new leadership within the local Democratic Party, who, who are already much more actively than their predecessors working on voter registration, for instance, and, and addressing barriers to voting. So all of those things are super important. Mm-hmm. And and is there there any evidence that, that you found in the, in the course of your research that this churn and burn strategy is discouraging people or preventing them from getting involved at at the grassroots level there were some comments on on your times piece well you could just unsubscribe from the emails or you you know you this is like a solvable problem on that level but i i I wonder about people getting burned out feeling like they can't really do anything feeling helpless or hopeless and i you know I, i wonder if if that has come to bear in any of the the uh, research you've you've done in this area. Well, I, I think that um, we do know from some of the academic research that over communication um, can turn people off. Um, that there's really declining returns from, you know, knocking on somebody's door or texting or calling them for the fourth, fifth, sixth time. Anecdotally, there is enormous <laughs> resentment of the apocalyptic emails, the fake deadlines. And at the same time, and, and by the way, in the industry, there are, there are more people now than I've ever seen um, who are trying to change the practice in the industry itself. There's a new website called ethicalemails.org uh, that was put together by a guy named Josh Nelson, who has been really trying to get the vendors to change uh, what they will allow, they're they're wary of getting into you know monitoring and and uh, deciding what subject lines go go too far or are you really abusing uh, senior citizens with the which you are frankly abusing them, but uh, the industry is wary of self regulation. I think the possibility of change is unlikely unless. The leaders of the uh, the actual bodies that do the bulk of this, which is party leaders um, and campaigns, uh, decide that uh, this is just not the right way to go about it. Yeah, and I guess that is one way, I suppose, other than, I mean, it's sort of similar to, to unsubscribing from emails. If enough people just don't give, I suppose that's one way to... to- push for change if they see that this strategy is, is no longer financially viable to yeah. pursue. You know, and I think, you know, our argument wouldn't be that giving money to campaigns is a bad idea. I mean, frankly, and this this may be a point where, where Mika and I slightly disagree, but, you know, the evidence that having an advantage in, in cash on hand in order to, for instance, run television ads, especially in down-ballot campaigns, so not in the presidentials that are mm-hmm. so saturated, but for, for, you know, state rep campaigns, 
to be able to have parity or or to predominate in television advertising is is super important. It's very impactful. So I think there's a world of you know deserving candidates out there, and and donating to them will make a difference with your dollar if you find a candidate who's who reflects your values and who's advocating for policies that you care about and who's running to flip a seat or to hang on to a seat that's a that's you know a narrowly as a as a, a narrow margin. Absolutely. That candidate's a great target for your political donations if you have the ability to give. You know, we would encourage some of the encouraging signs that we see is the evolution of what some people are calling the sort of volunteer donor advisors or donor advisor hubs. So sort of networks of giving circles on the on the in this in, in the case that we're studying on the center to left where people intentionally come together and say, well, let's work together to educate ourselves about races and come up with a plan for how we're going to learn about which races really where where our money can make an impact and then we're going to use our relationships to reach outward and ask for money and explain what we're doing. Mika, you also said uh, earlier in in our conversation that this uh, churn and burn strategy is mm. something that the Republicans engage in too. I I just read yeah. that Former President Trump sent something like a hundred emails around the the um, FBI Mar-a-Lago situation. But what's what's different about the the underlying structure and and organization of the Republican Party um, that maybe uh, d- you know what what do the the Republicans have in terms of a, of a, a grassroots structure that maybe the Democrats don't? Well, I think they have a couple of things. One is they have a, a cleaner brand. Uh, it's it's fairly easy now to say what Republicanism stands for. And it's been true even going back before the Trump years. You could summarize it in a few words, you know, uh, lower taxes, bigger military, you know, restore the patriarchal family. They wouldn't use those words. Uh, you know, white Christian values. It's a bit more explicit now. I don't think Democrats have a clear brand at all. It's really quite muddy. The second thing is is that they have you know more committed billionaires uh, who invest in long-term institution building in a way that Democrats have not ever had. George Soros, et cetera, to the you know exception. And the third thing, which you know we got at a little bit in our Times piece, uh, is that they have an alliance, a very close relationship with thousands of local kinds of social formations, be it gun clubs or, or um, evangelical churches or Christian homeschooling moms networks, that where the bigger message of the day resonates locally. Um, uh, you know, they also do have quite a committed media uh, system from Fox News further to the right. But that it's that last mile, and I really should let Lara talk about the last mile, because this is her, her term, where the Democrats, I think, especially since uh, local labor has really shrunk in a very defensive way, you know, after decades of attacks on uh, the ability to organize, where Democrats don't have the same kind of local resonance for, you know, whatever their national message might be. Larry, do you want to add on that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. The last mile uh, is really important. I think that, you know, the, the crucial question is, you know, for within so many different communities in the United States, 
from urban to suburban to rural, who who are the tr- trusted local messengers who are sharing and developing and shaping the message? This is what Democrats stand for, and this is why your vote matters, and this is why you this is this is this is why you should be part of the system. Everything that we know from the sociological research about voting emphasizes how whether people the ways that people participate in the political system are hugely shaped by what they saw their parents do when they were growing up and what what is going on with the people who they know in their daily lives around them and the whole apparatus that tries to send you know postcards to voters or knock on doors is basically trying to make up for the the gap that has arisen in local daily organic ties that do that work of saying oh there's an election coming up and here's why it matters to me and here's here's why people like us whatever that us looks like people like of course people like us are going to vote and of course what each party wants is it for, for it to be natural for when you say of course people like us are going to vote each party wants the implicit addendum to be and of course we're going to vote for democrats or of course we're going to vote for republicans so that like implicit of course of course we do this people like us do this atrophied on the democratic side because it was so dependent on these you know crucial local organizations first and foremost labor unions played that role of you know why was it that there's such a long legacy of people voting and voting as democrats in places like Green County and you know the sort of the, the legacy mining areas of Pennsylvania because people grew up in communities where of course we're going to vote and of course we're going to vote for Democrats like that was the the legacy of the mine workers struggles that was the legacy of the New Deal it was the legacy of of Roosevelt's you know throwing the force of the federal government in support of labor organizing in industrial areas. And another counterpart to that is, of course, the totally critical role of black churches in as the forefront of, of broad support and engagement in the civil rights movement, such an, and as a place where people told, you know, created within the community, the of course, of course, we're going to vote. And of course, we're going to vote for the party that represents us. And this is which that party is. So the the Democratic Party uh, sort of skated by not having to re- rebuild those and sustain and respect those ties because they were benefiting from the ties that the labor unions were building, from the ties that the churches were building. And as sociological shifts and also attacks on the ability of people to organize labor unions mm-hmm. over the course of the 1970s and 80s and 90s, that wasn't just something that magically happened. There were, you know, a, a, a huge amount of money and um, litigation was invested in undercutting the ability of unions to play that role. And the, with the result that they have no longer been able to, well, that created a, a, a hole at the local level, but local everywhere in this kind of local connective tissue that binds people within communities to each other and to the political system. And rather than investing in building that out again, the, you know, democratic national organizations focused on these sort of short-term, like high, high sugar, quick fixes of fundraising through, you know, emails, fundraising through texts and. Or just nominating or just nominating self-funding rich candidates, which is another way of solving the the same problem. Mm. Um, I'd add one more thing to, to Lara's point, which is 
while there still is, especially in the black community, uh, a lot of this organic um, connection, many, many Democrats run away from that. Um, they think that they actually have to keep uh, those voters at arm's length while they appeal to some mythical, you know, white swing suburban voter. Um, the Democrats have a very difficult problem there. I don't see Republicans running away from their core voters in the same way. And so that that's a, a challenge. And the challenge has gotten even more intensified since 2020 with, you know, the Black Lives Matter surge, which was huge, probably the biggest grassroots mobilization that our country has ever seen in terms of local protests taking place uh, in places that have never seen uh, solidarity with Black lives as a public expression. But the backlash has also been severe, and it's still roiling our politics now. And in the places where, you know, we've seen political movements most transformed. And in the piece that we wrote for The Times, we talked about changes in the northern suburbs of Pittsburgh, which have been really remarkable. It's because people have been focused not only on local elections, but on local elections in addition to congressional, Senate, and presidential mm -hmm. elections. And so they've gone out and met their neighbors. That you know They focused canvassing locally in 2017 because they were trying to elect people to the school board. So literally, that was the, you know, there was no like, oh, maybe I should like do something to Georgia. It's like, no, it's this school board. So I need to be out there talking to, to other people in this place to get their votes. And not only did they make an impact on who voted for whom, in November, but they also learned themselves. And you've, and I've seen and really been, it's been amazing watching the wisdom gained and the savvy gained by local people doing politics in their own place. And that doesn't push them to the far left. It doesn't push them to the far right. It pushes them into the space of actually solving problems. And, and that's something that I think can be replicated anywhere. It's not unique. The, the explicit content of you know what the stakes are is going to, are going to be different in an urban neighborhood or a suburban neighborhood in a red state or a blue state. But the basic fact of of the enormously positive impact of getting out and doing politics in a way that learn in in which you're building connections and learning from what you learning from the wins, learning from the losses, and moving forward together. That's the hope that I see moving forward. I think that is a good place to leave things. We will link to uh, your New York Times piece and, and also, Mika, to your newsletter, The Connector, in the show notes if people want to go in and read more from both of you. But uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. That was a real pleasure. Well, Jen, it was uh, it was uh, great to hear from uh, from Lara again, and uh, this time with uh, Mika as well. Uh, Candace, what do you think about all these uh, email blasts that we're getting? I hate them. You, I you, also, you I and Lara also, both. <laughs> um, I also I also don't like the text messages from people who write to me like they know who I am, like they know me, and I think. What's going on here is that there is a recognition that relationships matter. And um, in this case, people are kind of faking a relationship. But I am with Lara and Mika on this, that what if the parties leveraged real relationships for more robust participation? 
So, you know, I don't know. I think that people think that they're being hard on the email blasts, but I, I think one of the things that we're missing out on and what I think they illuminate really well is that these kind of blasts come as like these emergency moments or right around elections and they don't do the work of bringing in people for long-term participation in between elections. Well, my, the worst summer job I ever had, I, I was doing direct sales by telephone where you're calling people randomly uh-huh. and always pretending that you're their best friend. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a technique as, as old as can be because it was a long time since I've been, been doing this. And of course, the technology has changed. Now it's not phone calls, it's text messages that can go out to, uh, you know, I don't know what millions of text messages at a time. I have no idea what they're able to send. Certainly thousands that, you know, they only need a return rate of a very small percentage, I would think, to be able to make some money out of them. So they must be doing it because it works to raise money, not right, not necessarily for the purposes that Lara's talking about, which is yes. to get people out, but yes. to raise money. And I mean, to yes. me, it speaks to, you know, complaining about them too much is, is uh, just takes us back to, well, elections are too expensive. You know, during the 2020 election, a neighbor of mine who is a Republican was just kind of feeling like he wasn't sure if voting for Trump was what he should be doing. And we had a whole conversation, but my pitch to him was, if you care about democracy, then maybe voting for Trump is not the thing that you want to do this time. Not to say that you're not a Republican. I think that's fine. And there's down ballot candidates that you probably really like. So vote for democracy and for the people that you think are going to uphold the kind of rule of law, the things that you care about, the institutions that we have, the norms. And you know, we talked for 20 or 30 minutes, but I also know him and he knew me. And that is a different kind of participation. It's a it's a more meaningful participation. And I think that that's what Lara and Mika and more people are looking for. The people who went out and protested and, you know, the people who were really galvanized by the 2016 election, they have energy. They have a desire to participate in government more than just voting and putting in money. And so, you know, on some level, we are kind of wasting that away by focusing on, by using those people to just send out text messages and emails. Interesting about their work or a point that I find really interesting about their work, and that's who's going to do this? Who's going to do this? (laughs) Like, who's going to go out and have these conversations and make this contact and create this energy? Well, I mean, I think that there are people who are doing this work already, right? Lara shows that. There are plenty of grassroots activists who are trying to make change in their communities. And whether they're getting the support of the major parties, I think that is that that seems to be where there is a a mismatch, that there's not a link, there's not that's not connected. And I think that's a point that um Lara and Mika bring up that it's probably better for me to canvas my own neighbors than for some person who lives on the other side of town to come in and even kind of suggest 
that they would know better than we would know yeah, about yeah. our own issues and concerns. And, and certainly parties appreciate that. I think when they send people out for uh, canvassing on the weekends, they're, they're generally trying to send people to uh, their own neighborhoods where they're you know, more likely to, to know their neighbors. I mean, one thing that I can't help but thinking about is that one way in which the people that are doing this work has changed is that they're more likely to be activists. And, mm-hmm. and now not completely because, and, and Lara and others have been really good in identifying how, for example, uh, you know, women have become mobilized. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the thing about the Dobbs decision, I think, is that Democrats are much less likely to run from their pro-choice activists and their pro-choice activists who are, who I, now maybe I'm wrong about that, Candace, and let me know if you think otherwise, but I think they see their pro-choice activists as more likely to be, you know, the, the middle-class women that are often the, the, uh, are professional women, I should say, that are often really central to their coalition. Uh, and they want to get them out. They want to activate them. They're comfortable with the message. But that's not true of their climate activists. And I don't think it's really true of their Black Lives Matters activists and racial justice activists more generally. So one one thing I think is important to note, though, about the marches um, and protests is that we also tend to think about activists. Sometimes we the media treats activists as like they came out of nowhere. When a lot of those people are expert in building networks and coalitions. And so, again, by distancing oneself from those folks, I think that any party that does that does a disservice to to the possibilities for bringing in more people into politics. Yes. Yeah. And that activism, you know, that getting involved in that project, that teaches them also the the skills that they need to be able to organize. So I will say that I appreciate Lara and Mika for really kind of keeping their fingers on the pulse of these changes and the dynamics. Um, And also just really for kind of highlighting this kind of political industrial complex that can turn citizens into just voters and ATMs that, um, you know, are called upon on, you know, by, uh, you know, every other year, um, rather than laying down a foundation on which relationships can be built for constant political participation, even between elections. So I am thankful for them for, for, for doing that kind of nuanced, um, close reading of what's going on at the, at the very local level, which, you know, we can have that same debate about, you know, is all, you know, are all politics local, but we know that it does matter. We know that local politics matters. So um, with that, I would just say thank you to um, Lara and Mika for joining us and for highlighting these dynamics. For Democracy Works, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. 
Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.